The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, hey, good to be with you. Let's uh, let's pray together, shall we, before we dive into to God's word. Um, a little bit of a cough, so we're going to do our best to work through it. Um, let the Lord be present. God, we love you. God, we need you this morning. We need you every morning. (laughs) Lord, you are close to us, present with us. Maybe even just take a moment to do what we've been practicing this week as a church family to just breathe and sit in the presence of God. Lord, we we come to sit under your word, not over it as if we are its authority or your authority, not alongside of it as if it has some good ideas we should just consider and contemplate and think about, but under it is your revelation of yourself, is your reality, is your truth. Lord, we submit to your word because ultimately we submit to you. Be near to us, Father, as those who in Christ have your full delight. In Jesus' name, we pray and all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, in the mid-17th century, uh, the kingdom of England found themselves in the midst of a series of bloody and violent civil wars. And the conflict primarily was over what the relationship should be and who should rule between the kingdoms of England and Scotland and Ireland. So think like historical Brexit, all right? And one of the issues at play was the disillusion of the Church of England, that they wanted to do away with one kind of governing body and bishop that oversaw all of the churches in that land. They wanted each of the churches to be free to assemble and to gather and to preach and to believe as they see fit. And the bishops and the leaders within the Church of England at the time was worried because without an organizing body to help lead and protect the churches, how would they guard against heresy and false teaching and all of these things? within the church. And so in response, the Church of England came together in what came to be known as the Westminster Assembly. And they did so with the goal that they wanted to come together and say, okay, as Christians have throughout points in history, let's have a standard set of beliefs, a standard set of confessions agreed upon within the church that would govern and guide churches in the future from becoming heretics and unorthodox. And accompanying that confession of faith, they wrote what came to be known as the Westminster Catechism. Now, if you're not familiar with that language, 
language. Catechisms are a series of questions and answers that churches have used for hundreds of years to teach people the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. So they put together what was, became known as the Westminster Catechism, which even still today, right up the road at RTS, students have to memorize and know before they're able to graduate. So it's been in the church for hundreds and hundreds of years. And they decided that the very first question and answer in that catechism, the number one most important thing for Christians to know in the years to come to protect them from heresy was this question. They asked, what is the chief end of man? What is the goal? What is the point? What is the telos of mankind? Why are we here as humans? And here's how they answered that question. They said, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So the number one thing that followers of Jesus will have to understand in order to continue to walk closely with the Lord in the ages and ages to come is that they have to understand they were created first and foremost to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That was their summation. The whole reason we exist as people is to glorify and enjoy God now and into eternity. And what we're going to see today in the second line of the Lord's Prayer is an invitation. I want to argue that prayer is a primary, if not maybe even the primary way we learn to glorify and enjoy God. So in case you missed it last week, we are walking on this kind of six-week journey through the Lord's Prayer from Matthew chapter 6 during this season of Lent leading up to Easter. We started last week with the first line, this first invitation of prayer, our Father in heaven. What we said is that the starting point of all prayer is not what we say, but rather who we say it to. That prayer, first and foremost, is not an idea or a transaction or empty words, but rather an opportunity to commune and to be with our heavenly Father. He who is present to us and near to us, who is intimate with us and yet powerful and rules and reigns over all things. And the very first thing that Jesus is now going to tell us about prayer, after reminding us who we're talking to, is not to bring requests is not to bring grievances, is not to bring anxieties or worries or needs, but rather we start here, Matthew 6, verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That is the first thing Jesus invites us to pray. Our Father in heaven, we remember that we commune with God, and then the first thing Jesus teaches us is to pray, hallowed be your name. Now, that is probably not language that you are going to use in your everyday life, right? So if you're at community group this week and someone's like, how's your prayer life? Chances are you're not like, it's really good. I've been doing a lot of hallowing lately. Like me and God, we're just kind of hallowing his name a lot, right? Like that's not everyday comment. Like, how was your weekend? It was good. I spent a lot of time hallowing. Like that's not a word we use today in 2023. And so let me just kind of break down this phrase with us for a minute. Let's take it kind of piece by piece. First, he says, hallow. Now, the Greek word hallow is hagiasa, which is translated to make, to treat, or to set apart as holy. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, which is another translation, says this line, may your name be honored as holy. A helpful English synonym that I'll use often in the next few minutes is the word exalt. To hallow or to exalt something is to declare, this is different than me. This is set apart from me in, in ways I can't even fully comprehend. It's just awesome. It's to recognize that something or someone is magnificent and other and just incomprehensible. 
So we hallow it. We set it apart as being not like us. You may have heard uh, somebody describe a place of land as being hallowed ground. Right? This idea that that place, that land is sacred, it's set apart, it's other, it's not like the rest of the space. And so Jesus tells us to do first in prayer. We hollow, we make or treat or set apart as holy God's name. So the second part is that God's name. That's the second thing we need to consider. Now, this is a much weightier concept than we first might think. For many of us as modern Westerners, our names really aren't that big of a deal, Right? So there's some nuance to this, and I know in our day and age, names are getting kind of more important, but for most of us, names are kind of dismissible, right? Like we can change it, we can go by our middle name, we can uh, make up nicknames for ourselves or go by nicknames. It's kind of just, you know, this thing, like names aren't that big of a deal. But in the ancient Jewish culture, names had weighty value to them. Someone's name in Jesus's time and culture was their identity. It was who they were. Names carried meaning. It declared or prophesied identity over someone. So you think about in the book of Matthew, Jesus asked his disciples, hey, who do people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And in response, he says, yes, and you are Peter. He renames a guy named Cephas to the name of Peter, which means rock this identification that on that confession of faith, he's going to build his church. So one scholar says, to Jewish people, a name was inseparable from the person to whom it belongs. It is something of his or her essence in the world. This is why the third command out of the Ten Commandments, right, do not take the Lord's name in vain, means so much more than just like, don't say OMG, right? It's so much bigger than that because the Lord is his name, right? It's inseparable. The personhood and essence of God and his name are one in the same. And so when we are commanded in the third commandment to not take the Lord's name in vain, it's not so much about his name as it is the Lord himself. Don't take God in vain. Don't attribute to him things that are not true and don't not attribute to him things that are true, So when Jesus teaches us to pray, hallowed be God's name, he's not simply inviting us to make a lot of his labeling identity. He's inviting us to make a lot of his person and essence. In other words, set God himself apart as holy. The third thing we have to understand to grasp the weight of this comes in verse 10. So he says, our father, Matthew 6, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Take a look at that last line in verse 10, on earth as it is in heaven. This is one of those times where our English translations don't quite capture it. Uh, It's not wrong. It's just not as helpful as it could be. So in ancient Greek, they didn't have punctuation marks like we do. Those are interpretive decisions that translators make when they're moving from Greek to English. And the vast majority of scholars argue that where there is a period in verse 9, there should actually be a comma. So look back at it with me real quick. It says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And most people argue that should actually be a comma, not a period. So it should read, hallowed be your name, comma, your kingdom come, comma, your will be done, comma, on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, that phrase, on earth as it is in heaven, is modifying all three of those things. The hallowing of God's name, his kingdom come, and his will be done. In other words, you could more accurately read verses 9 and 10 in the prayer as, your kingdom come, on earth as it is in heaven, Your will be done, Lord, on earth as it is in heaven, and your name be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven. 
In other words, God, would your name be seen and declared as holy as it is currently now in heaven? Which then should lead us as good Bible readers to ask the question, well, how hallowed is God's name in heaven? What is happening with God in heaven that is declaring that he is holy? And this is the picture we get in Romans four, Revelation chapter 4. It's this crazy picture of all these creatures flying around the throne room of God with all these wings and eyes, all that fun stuff. And this is what we read that they are doing. Day and night, the angels and these creatures never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is, and is to come. And so the scriptures say here in the throne room of God, we get this picture in Isaiah 6 as well, there is unceasing worship of God. That the angels are declaring throughout history and into eternity, holy, holy, holy is God. He's set apart. He's other. So hallowing God's name on earth as it is in heaven is not simply uh, this kind of continuation of the greeting to God, but rather asking him to do on earth and in our lives what is already being done in heaven and what we will do for all eternity if we're followers of Jesus. Right? If you want to know what heaven is like, heaven is joining the chorus of praise, holy, 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 for the rest of eternity that the angels have been doing and will continue to do. And so when we're invited by Jesus, pray, whole, pray, hallowed be your name, we're invited to start now in prayer what we will do for all eternity. Hallow the name of God. Worship him as holy. It's an invitation to start acting out the truest and greatest thing we will do for the rest of our lives and then some. To hallow God's name. To worship him as holy. So when Jesus teaches us this prayer, hallowed be God's name, he's inviting us to begin that forever hallowing now in prayer. All right, so this is how I would kind of summarize everything we just said, this phrase, hallowed be your name. When Jesus teaches us to pray, hallowed be your name, he is saying this, pray that God himself would be set apart as holy here on earth and in our lives as he is in heaven. Summation of this line. Pray that God himself would be set apart as holy here on earth and in our lives as he is in heaven. Which might be uh, immediately kind of confusing for some of us because God is holy, right? So Jesus is saying, pray, declaring, hallowing, exalting God as holy, but God is holy. So if God is already holy, if he's already set apart in the world and in heaven, why would Jesus tell us to pray in a way that sets him apart as holy? Why do we hollow someone who's already being hollowed, right? Like why is God some needy deity? He like needs us to affirm him as his creation. Does he cease to be holy if we don't recognize him as such? Like why would Jesus invite us to pray what is already true about God? Let me suggest to us this this morning. That praying for God's name to be hallowed is actually much less about God's needs and much more about ours. Let me say that again. Praying for God's name to be hallowed is actually much less about God's needs and much more about ours. Here's what I mean. We don't step into prayer from places of neutrality, right? When we step into prayer, we come as those in the world and affected by the world. So when I'm in the midst of the chaos and busyness and brokenness of my life, and I try by the power of the Spirit through the work of Jesus to step into prayer, I become well aware of the state of my own soul. 
right? In other words, let me say it this way. I become well aware that when I come to hollow God, that I step out of the world and into prayer as someone who was just spending his time hollowing something else. So when I step in to exalt God, I find, oh, I've been exalting my achievements at work. When I come to set God apart on the throne of my life, I find that I've put money there instead. I come to love God and worship him, only to find I've been loving and worshiping the approval of others. I come to ask God, Lord, can you give me your mercy and grace and peace and welcome, only to find I've been searching for those things in all other forms of worldly escapes and comforts. We enter into prayer with divided hearts. We step out of the world and into communion with God, into his presence, and we must first hallow God because we've spent all week in the world hallowing something else. We've been hallowing the things of this world, setting up these false gods who get our worship, but we can also enter into prayer hallowing our suffering as well. So think about it this way, right? We enter into prayer, and we've been chasing after all these things, hallowing, exalting, lifting up, declaring all of these other things are actually God to us except for God. And so we enter into prayer ready, needing to hollow him, needing to put him back onto the throne of our lives. And we do that with all of these false gods, but we also do it with our suffering. We enter into prayer having just hallowed our suffering. And here's what I mean. We are mostly reactionary creatures, Meaning we live most of our lives out of response to what happens to us and around us. So we get, someone hurts us, right? We react with anger and bitterness and resentment. We get a bad report at work or a bad eval with our boss, and we react with anxiety and worry and frustration. Our kid disobeys us, and we react with annoyance and sadness. And what happens is we, with a reactionary heart, learn a way of being in the world that is dictated and determined by everything going on around us. We're tossed to and fro by our suffering. We're looking for all sorts of relief and escape in things and people other than God. And so that carries over into our prayer life. And so we enter into prayer with all of these compounded worries, and we rush straight to the problem. And prayer becomes synonymous with a little bit more than Christianized versions of worrying. So we step into prayer and we have all of these anxieties, all of this suffering, all of this pain, all of this worry, and we say, dear God, and then we enter into rattling off our list of to-dos and grievances, which is often why you might find yourself struggling to pray when life is good, because our prayer life is built out of reaction to suffering, not out of reaction to God. And that's the invitation of hallowing prayer. The invitation of hallowing prayer is to build a life that of prayer that responds to God, not to what is going on around us. So hallowing God's name, pausing at the start to recognize and set him apart as holy is a means by which we slow down and we stop and we remember God. Before we give him our sorrow, which we do, before we present our requests, which we do, before we ask him for our needs, which we do, we first ground our hearts back in who he is and what he has done for us. In other words, I'm reorienting my heart not to pray out of reaction to the world, but rather out of reaction to God. It doesn't make our needs or sorrows any less important. It just grounds what is always changing in he who is never changing. It grounds the worries and anxieties of our lives back onto who God is. I was reminded this week of something that one of my friends says often when he has to describe his story, his testimony with God. He always says, my life tells two stories. This interwoven life between the tyranny of the world and the wonder of God's grace. 
Since that's how I would summarize my life. And that's how we should all summarize our lives, probably. This kind of back and forth between the tyranny of the world and the wonder of God's grace. And he says the invitation for us in hallowing God's name is to let the wonder of God's grace be what drives us and grounds us in prayer, not the tyranny of the world. We present the tyranny of the world to God based on the fact that he is wonderful and gracious and merciful. We first respond to who he is. This is how Pastor Tyler Staten puts it. He says, prayer flows from the posture of our hearts toward God, not from reaction to the world around us. Everything that comes from the Lord's prayer after this first movement is an overflow of the name of God being hallowed in the heart of the praying person. Teach us to pray, the disciples say to Jesus. And he responds in essence, start by remembering who you're talking to. We're going to give language next week in the Lord's Prayer for these griefs and pains, the sufferings of the world. It's the biblical language of lament. What do we do with our grief? But first and foremost, the invitation is not to let our grief be the foundation of prayer, but rather our Savior be the foundation of prayer. And that reorients us towards our grief. And that leads us into this week's practice that we're going to be participating in together. We've been saying um, for the last few weeks, and especially last week, that prayer is a practice. We step into this. We learn to pray by practicing. This week, we're going to practice something together called prayers of adoration. Adoration is a means of hallowing God's name by declaring true things about God to God. Adoration is a means of hallowing God's name by declaring true things about God to God. It's a way we learn to get out of the burdens of our present situations, turn our hearts from running after all of these false gods, hallowing all these other things besides God, our suffering, our sin, and fix our attention back to God. We learn to worship him. We learn to adore him. We remember at the core of who we are as people, as followers of Jesus, that we are first and foremost children of God, created to, as they said, 350 plus years ago, we are created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's the first move of prayer. Oh, the way Richard Foster says it, he says, adoration is the yearning of the heart to worship, honor, magnify, and bless God. We ask nothing but cherish him. We seek nothing but his exaltation. We focus on nothing but his goodness the yearning of the heart. Do you feel that? I don't always. <laughs> I'm trying to. I think that's the goal of this week, to practice this yearning, turning our hearts. Lord, does, does my heart burn in desire to worship, honor, magnify, and bless you? Is that the first invitation of prayer? To commune with God, and then in that communion, to bless him, to adore him. We, we see this all over the place in the scriptures. Psalm 57 Right? David is on, his, on, his, uh, on the run for his life from Saul. He's in the cave. He's hiding. If you read Psalm 57, he's like, I'm going to worship God. God's faithfulness extends to the clouds. Think about Acts 16, right? Paul and Silas are in prison for preaching the gospel, and they decide middle of the night in prison, we're going to sing hymns and worship God. Despite what's going on around us, despite our circumstances, this invitation to pray prayers of adoration. We learn, okay, this is what's going on in my life, but I reground myself in God. Specifically, we adore God for, for two things. The first is we adore God for who he is. We adore God for, for who he is. Our Father in heaven, unchanging, always and forever the same. Let me just tell you some of the things the scriptures say God is. It's 
Scriptures say that God is loving, that he's gracious, that he's kind, compassionate, and true, that he's gentle but also strong, He's holy, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's merciful. The Bible tells us in his name, some of his essence, that he's Yahweh, meaning he's the Lord. He's El Shaddai, the God Almighty. He's Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. He's Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. He's Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace and flourishing. And in prayer, what we get to do is we get to just sit and delight in the fact that that is our God. That's the invitation of adoration. That's the invitation of hallowing. We go into God's presence. All right, prayer is first and foremost about communing with God. And then we get to remember and adore him and celebrate him because of all the wonderful things that he is. That do not change. What do the scriptures say? He is the same yesterday, today, and what? Forever. Our God does not change. He does not cease to be any more loving. He does not cease to be any more kind. He does not cease to be any more powerful and wonderful and awesome. Second thing we do is that we adore God for what he's done. We adore him for what he's done. We adore him for what he's done big picture in salvation history, in the big grand scheme of our redemption that he saw us when we were rebellious and sinners against him. He sent Jesus into the world to live a perfect life, to live the life we could not live, to die the death that we deserved, and yet to rise again to defeat Satan, sin, and death and give us new life in him. So we just, okay, first and foremost, God, if you do nothing else in my life, you did that for me. If you provide nothing else for me, you provided that for me. You provided a means by which I can know you now and into eternity despite my sin and rebellion. That's enough. And so we start by just remembering salvation history. We enter into prayer. I'm here in the presence of God, communing with him. And first and foremost, God, thanks for the gospel. Thanks for the fact that only because of the gospel can I even pray right now to you or want to pray to you or want to worship you or want to walk with you. But we don't just celebrate the big grand scheme of redemption. We also celebrate the small redemptive history of our own lives. We remember and adore God in prayer for what he has done for us. That our lives too, yes, say the tyranny of the world, but also tell the story of the wonder of God's grace. That we're here, that he's been kind to us, that he's provided our every need, that as we sang last week, all that we needed his hand has in fact provided, even though we think we provided it for ourselves, even though that provision hasn't looked like we've wanted, he has still provided what we need. So we worship him as such. This past week I got the chance to be uh, in Florida for a few days with uh, a group of church planners and pastors. And one of the things they had us doing on this little mini retreat is walking through a, a life map, just kind of recounting our stories. And in particular, they had us plot two sets of points in our lives, the points where we feel like we're in the desert, we're in the wilderness, in the language of the scriptures, where we just feel we're separate from God, this kind of dark night of the soul as St. John would say, as we've just kind of walked in through, like walked through the battles of life and the suffering and pain of life. But the other kind of points they had us mark were the mountaintop moments. The moments where you're just marked by God's presence, where you understand his provision for you, where you just can look back on your life and say, here's where God was faithful. 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 And what I found is that both were equally powerful and necessary. 
what I found is that God worked through both. And so I'm recounting all of these lows, and I'm, I'm doing this practice of lament like we're going to talk about next week. But it was a, it was a discipline. I did, my heart did not want to just also go to all the things to be thankful for. Like I found in my heart, it's like it's almost easier to walk the bottom line than it is the top line. It's almost easier in my heart to mark all the times in my life where I feel like God didn't show up how I wanted, didn't provide what I needed, didn't show up in all of the ways I was hoping or thinking or wanting or asking him to show up. And it was so much harder to step into the upper line that says, oh, here's all of the fantastic, incredible ways he's been faithful. But when I was disciplined to actually be able to do that, I found my heart was drawn into worship and the current sufferings of my life were put into proper perspective. Well, they were still painful. And it's still hard and still working through a lot of things, but grounded in the reality of my God who has never changed, of our God who is still good and who is still true. And so the practice of adoration, this first invitation to hallow the name of God is the invitation as a people who are bent to look at the bottom line to also make sure we're looking at the top one, to also make sure we're remembering the faithfulness of God to also make sure we're stopping and pausing, entering into prayer going, here's how the Lord is great and, worship, and worthy to be praised and ready to be worshiped, and also here's what he's done for me. So we're going to step into that together this morning, uh, as we've been going to do over this series, and we're going to give us a chance to practice that, because prayer is a practice. We just don't want to talk about prayer. We want to be a people who pray. And so in your bulletin, you should have Psalm 100, I hope. Um, if not, there are Bibles on the back of the seats. Psalm 100 is where we're going to be. It's a short little psalm. And I want to just guide us into this practice of adoration because this is a discipline. Your heart, your mind is not going to be drawn to celebrate God. And so we have to practice it. We have to teach our hearts to look for who he is and what he has done in our lives. And so the Psalms, as we said last week, give language to our prayers. It's the ancient prayer book of the scriptures, the ancient song book of the scriptures. And so I'm going to just kind of guide us through Psalm 100 in just a second and just invite us with some invitations to adore God. Now, if you're like, that's really weird, cheesy language, here's all I mean. Think about something you love, right? Whether it be a person, whether it be, um, I don't know, cheesecake or something. And think about kind of that, that welling up in your heart. Or just think about when you're, when you're standing or sitting next to or across from your spouse, for those of you that are married in the room, and you have those moments where it just feels like heaven is breaking in right now. And sometimes I don't like you, but a lot of times, or at least right now, I, I, I'm in love with you. You know those moments? Those moments where it just feels like, man, this is sacred. And the groundedness of our covenant in marriage is just welling up into my heart. Think about those moments where you're standing on the mountaintop. You just went on that long hike on Crowder's Mountain, and you're looking at, like, the one view that Charlotte has. And you're, like, a little bit caught up in glory, right? Just a little bit because it's Crowder's Mountain, but enough where you just have that in your soul, and you're like, this, this is it. That's the language of the scriptures for adoring God. We set him before us, like we talked about last week. We just place him before us, and we let everything that he has done for us and everything that he is just well up in our hearts. And I don't even mean emotionally. Like, you might walk out of the next few minutes, and you'd be like, I felt nothing. It's not, I'm not talking about feelings. Feelings might come. Those are good. Those are helpful. That's okay. But I'm talking about in the deep recesses of our identity. We just put him before us, and we know, God, I worship and celebrate and adore you. That's what we're going after over the next few minutes. So let me pray for us to kind of get us into it. Evan's going to come up just to give some distraction-free stuff for all the coughing. 
and then we'll get into it together. Let's pray. Maybe it would be helpful, even as we enter into prayer, to do what we've been doing all week, to just put your feet on the floor, sit back, to open your hands in a posture, saying with your body what we want to be saying with our hearts, Lord, we're, we're open to you. Just take a second and breathe. Remember that the Lord is here. Work's going to be there tomorrow. Relational conflict, that's this afternoon. Bills you got to pay, the errands you have to run, the hunger in your stomach, that, that's going to be there. We're going to set it aside. Just for a moment, a sacred moment. Open our hearts to the presence of God. We're going to remember that the world would tell us there is nothing beyond what we can see. We adamantly and rebelliously say that's just not true. Is with us. So we're going to spend some time adoring him. This is Psalm 100, verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. Take a few moments to just adore God for who He is, to remind your soul and to celebrate that the Lord, He is God. Verse 3 again. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Take a few moments to adore God for your own story, for the gospel, for the way that He has saved you in Christ. If you're not a Christian, ask Him to reveal Christ to you and to save you even now. Let's remember and adore God for the gospel. Jesus together. Verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving 
and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. So we just adored God for, for big salvation history, his saving work in our lives. Now let's spend some time thanking him and adoring him for his tangible, specific provision in our lives. This is not the chance to ask for all the things that we need. We have those things. This is the chance to thank him for what he has done and even what he is doing. steadfast love endures forever, his faithfulness to all generations. So we don't just adore God, celebrate him for what he's done in the past. We also look ahead to his future provision of faithfulness, his future care for us. So let's adore him for the fact that his steadfast love will endure forever and his faithfulness will go on to all generations. The verses we, we skipped at the beginning is the invitation to the next part of our gathering. It says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness and come into his presence with singing. I don't know if you know this or not, but we don't sing in our gatherings because we enjoy singing. We don't sing in our gatherings because it's some good idea or because churches have for a long time. We sing first and foremost because the scriptures command and invite us to in light of who God is to come into his presence with singing, with singing. So we're gonna move not out of adoration into singing, we're gonna continue our adoration through singing. And so I'm gonna invite you, if you would, if you want to stand, if you wanna keep praying, you're welcome to, but if you, for those who are ready, you can stand. We have communion on both sides of the stage for followers of Jesus. Our prayer team is around the room. If you're like, I'm struggling to adore God, I just need some prayer. I need somebody to pray for me to help my heart want to love God. They're there for you. They'd love to pray with you for that or for anything else going on in your life. But for those of us who are ready, Psalm 100 is our invitation. Come into his presence with sing singing. We're about to sing holy, holy, holy. Let me encourage you. Let me invite you with your body and with your voice to join the chorus of the angels in heaven and to not ole, 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 ole. <laughs> but to worship him as he's worthy of being worshipped. Listen, there's a time for lament. Come back next week. We're going to do a lot of it. 
We're going to do a lot of grieving with the Lord. And if that's where you are today, that's okay. I understand that. But I think especially in our day and age, especially in our culture, it's a fight to be ready to adore God. So we need to fight for this. We need to practice this. We need to be disciplined to step into this together. And so let's sing. Let's sing boldly. Let's sing confidently because of the work of Jesus that we can enter into the presence of God with singing. Let's celebrate King Jesus together over the next few moments.